0: Morning, glory, and evening, grace, America. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show on a special edition day. It's part five of our tour of Western civilization. Under the able guidance of Dr. Larry Arne, historian extraordinaire, philosopher, student, and president of Hillsdale College in Michigan. If you've been listening to any or all of our past four hours, you'll know that we've covered quite a lot of ground, and we're getting into the moderns now as we round into the last two hours of this special New Year's edition. Originally taped, for on December 31st, 2001, January 1st, 2002, we are now into sort of the height of English philosophy, and uh, Dr. Arne, I don't think you can make these guys interesting, Hobbes and Locke, that's who we're going to cover now, and you left off Milton, who might have made it possible to make Hobbes interesting. <laughs> uh, I, I have always hated Thomas Hobbes, and I know I'm with a guilty conscience I'm supposed to love Locke, but I can't for the life of me read him without falling asleep. Uh, Explain to us Hobbes and Locke.
1: Well, first of all, I'm going to try to ungroup those two, uh, because I think they should be ungrouped. Um, But, you know, they are actually riveting reading. Um, Hobbes' Leviathan is an amazing piece of writing, and it's a historic piece of writing. It is, uh, like Machiavelli, without quite the poetic force, but it, it is a drama. It is a very dramatic and powerful attack upon the world as it has been conceived before the modern philosophy. Early in the book, there's a chapter called Of Reason, and he says there that uh, reason, then, is but a scout or a spy to range abroad and find the way to the thing desired. I'm, I'm quoting that from memory, but I can remember when I first read that, and I went, wow. Because you see, one of the things that's going on in modern philosophy, especially in the early part of it, is if we're going to shift our focus from how men ought to be to how they are, then it naturally comes up that what we should be thinking about is what they want. And in Hobbes, it is systematic that your rational faculty is a servant of your passions, it is a reversal of the classical doctrine that happiness comes from virtue and virtue consists specifically in the subordination of the passions to the reason and so the world is turned upside down in Hobbes the divine otherworldly things they become in the leviathan spirits invisible (laughs) they're like ghosts and haunts and haunts And, and uh... It is, you know, he he gives an example once of uh, what war among rational people would be like, people who really understood their self-interest, their enlightened self-interest. They would understand that the most fearsome thing is violent death and the thing most to be avoided. And so in a war, if rational people were the soldiers, a picture of war would be two armies running from one another as fast as they could go. Hmm. Now that is a remarkable thing, to be writing. I mean, think now, you know. We've been, you know, you have to restore the moral perspective here. We have had our fellow citizens slaughtered in their thousands and cremated in a in a fire that only went out a few days ago that, darken the skies of New York and, and and put a stench in the air for weeks. That is a vile and frightful thing to do to men, women, and children alike. And thank God we have people who are prepared to go up the stairs to save their lives, or who are prepared to go to Afghanistan and hunt in those caves until they kill that man who did that thing. Well... That is not the perspective of Thomas Hobbes. <laughs> yes,
0: it's not. No, it's and
1: not. he makes a heck of an argument for his point of view.
0: Well, then, summarize his point of view, then. We ought to all be willing to give in and give over to someone who will keep us safe.
1: That's it. And, you know, the, the 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 Leviathan is an argument for a dictatorship designed to preserve our security. And And... That that is a consonant with because you remember one of the parts of one of the things that's going on in early modern philosophy, not so much in Machiavelli because Machiavelli is very warlike and a very spirited man. Um, Harvey Mansfield, you know, whom we've referred to before, he regards it as an important thing to do to recover some of the spirit of Machiavelli, as a way to offset some of the influence of Thomas Hobbes that may be among us, some of this. Uh, attempt as a political as an act of political education to make us fearful to dominate our lives with our fears and to excuse or to to demote and to put in the back our uh, connection with God and with all of the higher things that are above us. So Hobbes is terribly important and uh, you know <laughs> excuse me, I'll just say, I found Hobbes, I, you know, I, it, that was one of the early books that I found, you know, great books, that I found riveting to read. I do believe he is.
0: You could not say that about the second treatise on government, Bill. Uh, well. Come on, you can't say it. That's a terribly important book. Well, you didn't say that it was riveting, though.
1: No, I, I have not found Locke so riveting as Hobbes. <laughs> that's true. I have not. But, I, but he's, he's better. <laughs>
0: Why bother with Locke? When yeah. We can go right to the framers.
1: Well, because it—you it, uh, know—I have a good friend named Thomas West, and he's very wise. And um, he has—if you go to the website of the Family Research Council, you can find his Witherspoon lecture on John Locke, and it's an excellent piece of reading. And I agree with it. I believe he's carried off something that I have for years urged him not to do, in using almost exactly the phrase that you have used. Locke is either part of this conspiracy that's going on with Machiavelli and Bacon and and Hobbes and some others, or he's not. And he was very influential on the American Revolution. And so the question would be, is America, in its essence, and finally, low? There's that argument out there. And their, their, their love of Locke, whom they always call the Great Locke, he was undoubtedly the most influential of the philosophers upon them. And there are two ways you can deal with that, or well, there are three ways. You could agree with it. But in my opinion, that doesn't make the first bit of sense, for one reason, because we've always been such good warriors. And, of course, our, our ideal American, the American, is George Washington, mm-hmm. who was brave. <laughs> I mean, among other things, he was massively brave. He was the magnanimous man. Aristotle's description of the man of perfect virtue. And so you I, I don't believe you can just agree that we're a bunch of Lockeans in the low understanding of Locke. Then the question arises, how do you how do you cope if you don't agree? And there are two ways that I can think of and One is you can say that the Americans were practical men, and they weren't the slave of any philosopher. They were students of the political things just as much as Pericles or Themistocles in ancient Greece. And they contrived a political system that was in conformity with the natural political things they saw around them, as those things had been qualified and modified by the birth of Jesus and monotheism. That's one way to go. I have always preferred that way. I think it's true. But Tom West, on the other hand, who's a theoretic man of real ability, wants to redeem Locke. He's not alone in that. Uh, there's also Nathan Tarkov at, at uh, Chicago who's more or less of this view. I hesitate to speak for him, but he's he's a sophisticated man and a fine Locke scholar, and I've heard him make arguments similar to those that Tom West makes now what they qu- what they dwell on when they make these arguments, I'll read you a quote from from Locke, if I can find the darn thing uh, Nature, I confess, has put into man a desire of happiness and an an aversion to misery. Principles of actions, indeed there are, lodged in men's appetites. But these are so far from being innate moral principles that if they were left to their full swing, they would carry men to the overturning of all morality. Moral laws are set as a curb and restraint to these exorbitant desires." So that, well, what's that mean? What it, what's that supposed to mean to us? Well, what it's supposed to mean is this is not <coughs> excuse me I got a coughing spell here. This is not a man who is going down the road that Thomas Hobbes indicated, where if we but govern ourselves by giving rein to our strongest passions, we will have at last a peaceful society and harmonious under the thumb of an all-powerful ruler. This is a man who's giving a richer and broader picture of human nature, who understands that we do have these appetites, but if we liberate them and follow them anywhere they will take us, they will destroy us. What it must curb those is a moral law, that is to say, a looking up and beyond ourselves.
0: When we come back, Dr. Aron, we're going to turn to someone who actually is fun to read. No matter what he says, America, I'm warning you, if you pick up the second treatise, you're in for a really long haul. But Rousseau, well, he's, he's a lot of fun. Very mischievous. When we return, we go to the French with Dr. Larry Arne in this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt on a special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, taped originally for broadcast on December thirty first, two 2001, January 1, 2002, with Dr. Larry Arne, president of Hillsdale College. If you want a little bit of Hillsdale, you call 1-800-437-2268. Ask to be put on the imprimus mailing list. Once a month, you will get absolutely scot-free, in honor of Mr. Hobbs, a edition of a great speech or work of intellect. Now, Dr. Arne Rousseau, you didn't even put on your little cheat sheet you sent me the confessions, which really makes him fun. Uh, <laughs> in- instead, you put Emil on here. I once had Alan Bloom come when I was undergraduate, and they, they herded us all into a room, and he delivered of himself a two-hour extra on, a lecture on the Emil that not any of us understood three words of. And so... I'm for the confessions. I'm against Emile. So explain Rousseau and why we have to uh, like him.
1: Well, I, I think we should abstract from the debate between pleasure and and stern discipline, uh, the wrong side of which you have taken. <laughs> 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 I have. Let's talk about the discourses. Okay. Um, Rousseau is a very lively writer. Uh, he's interested in the pleasures. Uh, confessions of a Solitary is a very interesting. Thing where he, where the the kind of deepest kind of contemplation is lying in a boat, looking up at the sky, and on a pretty day and watching the clouds, and so, you're in a boat and it's just drifting, and the sky above is your, is your, and it's the sweet sentiment of existence comes over you. It's sort of French. Very. Um, there are two things to remark in his discourses that seem to me. Profoundly uh, important for what comes after him. One is this, the concept of malleability. Um, human beings are uh, malleable. That's a French term, of course, and uh, it means that they can be changed. Uh, language itself is an invention or an artifice. Remember that. The classical definition of the human being is that the human being is the beast that talks. It has language because the language requires reason. And that's what we have that makes us different from the other creatures. Well, in Rousseau, that becomes artificial. That develops over time. Um, And that means that we are evolving in some sense. He doesn't have a doctrine of evolution. But he has a doctrine of artifice, of change with time. And that ties into the second thing, which is what he calls the general will. Uh, The general will later becomes influential with John C. Calhoun and some American authors, but also with the German historicist, as does malleability. And there the idea is is that uh, our will, you see, that is to say what we wish for. Uh, What we intend becomes the measure of our politics. And the way you get harmonious politics, you know, he begins uh, the discourse with, uh, men are born free, but everywhere in chains. Why is that? I don't know. But what can be done about it? This is a 20-year-old memory I'm giving you now, and I apologize to every American who hears this for that, even every foreigner. But Um, But it's roughly that. What can be done about it? I think I can say. Well, the point is, is that you have to, you have to build a general will. We have to all wish for the same thing. <laughs> so it becomes an act of statesmanship, a purpose of government, to get people wishing for the same thing. Control of our wishes. And if you put those two doctrines together, you can see, if you understand them in just the right way, that. This might give a very wide scope.
0: This might lead to the French Revolution. It might lead to Marx. It might lead to Lenin. That's
1: it. So, oh, well, that, it
0: does, but it doesn't make him any less fun to read. I, well, I, I, I know, but <laughs> but he it, is a very he launches really the idea that we can uh, that, that a a small group of people can mold and socially engineer a group of people into all wanting the same thing and, and achieving utopia.
1: And and I, I just would like to comment to the people that we have taped the first of these just before Christmas and. The second of them just after Christmas, and Mr. Hewitt seemed liberated to talk more of pleasure this second. <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: I, I do want to warn people about Rousseau because he is very much a college phenomenon. I mean, like Nietzsche, young people are drawn to him for his, his optimism about the ability to achieve this utopia. You're skeptical of
1: him. Well, I, I, I too loved, I, I studied Rousseau and Nietzsche. With uh, and Hobbes, with Harry Newman, who teaches in, he's very ill now, I understand, who teaches in Claremont, a great teacher, uh, one of the most thorough and systematic and insightful men I ever met in my life, and I owe a lot of my education to him, although um, not my errors, which I'm compounding by the minute here. <laughs> um, and, and he was a wonderful teacher, both of Rousseau and of Nietzsche, and we would read these things like the, uh, like the man in the boat that I just described. I think the last time I read that, I was sitting in his class, and that was 27 years ago or so. But uh, it, you do see the power of it. It is, you know, it is true. I mean, do, does not every listener remember being a child lying on the ground in the grass looking up at the sky and feeling wonderful by the experience Imagine the same thing, except lying in a boat, where you're not even controlling where you go. You might just drift anywhere. See, that is the intoxicating power of Rousseau.
0: Now, you just, by the way, um, almost casually grouped the people. Uh, You you grouped Rousseau and Nietzsche and Hobbes, and my guess would be you would throw in Machiavelli and Marx. And there we would have the bad men. Am I right?
1: Yeah, I guess so.
0: And so what makes them bad? I mean, in essence,
1: what makes those the bad people? Well, you know, the the human being, the problem with ancient philosophy is that it doesn't seem to get anywhere, because there are just these questions. But that's sort of what life is like, isn't it? I mean, you... you have these things that face you and you are called to figure them out. But they tend to be hard to figure out. Have you had a loved one taken young? Why does that happen? Why is that right? What does right have to do with it? People of faith, they have to ask themselves the question. You know, one of the differences between Protestantism and Catholicism in the classic sense in the Reformation is the doctrine of purgatory. Well, purgatory which has some basis in the book of Revelation, I think, Um, and I'm not professing myself a believer in that here, but there's something there to it. Purgatory, among other things, is a way to sort of bring one of the teachings of the Scripture, which is a blessed thing, but also confusing in some context, into accord with our own natural sense of justice. What if it's true that Ted Bundy, who murdered all those people, had a conversion at the last minute and went to heaven. Whereas somebody who'd done good works all his life but rejected Jesus goes to hell. Well, purgatory sort of adds a step on the way where there can be some more punishment to kind of make it a little more right.
0: When we come back, we're, we're going to leave purgatory, Dr. Arm. We're going to go to the terra firma of Adam Smith. Time to, get, time to moor our boat at a dock which is sturdy. And we'll be right back on this special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, part five of the special edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show, a brief tour of Western civilization. Our guide, Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College, uncomfortable in the task but up to it nevertheless. Uh, we now tackle a pair of economists, Adam Smith and Karl Marx, the former a good, sturdy Scotsman, the latter a denizen of the uh, the British Library, in which Dr. Arnn introduced me by way of a... Of a lending card once to the old reading room and i thank you for that uh why do we need to even know these two people and are they indeed the uh the alpha and the omega of economics uh
1: they are um uh smith is a moral philosopher um his one of his key works is the theory of moral sentiments and there he he um, he comes up with a with a theory of the human being grounded in his sympathies um we, we could talk about that for a long time. It's very interesting, and the great Joseph Cropsey has written his doctoral thesis on that, and it's well worth reading. Um, more famous in Smith is his prepare, Preparation of the Ground for Modern Economics. He sort of comes, he, he gives an explanation, the first great explanation, and this is, by the way, about the time of the American Revolution, for why it is that a market economy works why it leads to freedom as well as prosperity. And this turns out to be a terribly important thing. He is, you know, the inventor of the conception of the invisible hand. Uh, my friend Stan Evans likes to tell a great joke about how libertarian he is. He says he resents the invisible hand. It's too intrusive. But what, what, what is meant by that expression is, is that human beings, one of the manifestations of their natural gregariousness, is they trade and cooperate with each other. And they, and they, if you leave the process to work, it is surprising how well it will work as, as if it were guided by a single hand. And that is one of the fundamentals of the achievement of freedom, which is necessary, in my opinion, in the modern world. And the market economy is vital to it. It cannot be done. If the common political power controls the property of the land essentially there will be no scope for private freedom mm-hmm. that goes along with their control of religion would be the same thing or their control of the family would be the same thing and smith in the wealth of nations it, it, uh, explains why this works and how it works and that it works and that proves to be a terribly important work now, Marx is a different sort of thing altogether. But to, to, to talk about Marx, you see, I think it's true of both Smith and Marx that they're not mainly economists. That's not what they think they are, and that's not really what their works are like. Um, both of them are trying to explain something. Both of them, in different ways, are trying to explain why things are as they are and how they are. Marx is trying to explain how they are as a process of change over time. And his method, his belief, is that things change because of material causes. In the end, the human soul itself disappears because it is the product of material causes. Aristotle's doctrine had been that the soul must be nothing, it must not have any matter in it whatsoever, which means it cannot occupy a place. And, and, and that is the condition of understanding. That is the condition of freedom. Um, Marx's idea is the opposite of that. Marx's idea, if you go back to, and you think of the concentration on, uh, uh, on things of this world, adding in Rousseau's idea that the human being develops and that language itself is artificial, then the question becomes, how does it develop? What is the process by which it develops? And in Marx, you get the most rigorous, clear, rigid kind of explanation in the Communist Manifesto and in Capital. And these are very detailed. The Capital is a terribly, frightfully dense. German kind of work. Yes. And it's very hard to read, and it's very detailed. And what he describes is a process somehow latent in history, by which the means of production shape us into conflicts with each other and these conflicts give rise to new developments and further conflicts until the time comes when we make the leap into perfect freedom we have heaven on earth then. so this concentration of the things here on earth come to mean in Marx a utopia on earth here in which we are all radically free
0: and he was Religion unfortunately, Latino. radically wrong. We are uh, about to take our break when we come back. Uh, two fun ones. We finish our hour number five with Charles Darwin and Nietzsche. Don't go anywhere. It's the special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt, the special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. We're in part five, and we're getting close to modern times, and we're almost over to the American experiment. But first, we must finish this hour. With a couple of Europeans, Charles Darwin and Friedrich Nietzsche. And our guest, Dr. Larry Arne, is going to explain it all to us. Darwin, of course, well known to everyone as the author of The Origin of the Species and uh, the launcher of so many conflicts. What do we need to know about him?
1: Well, Darwin was a biologist. Uh, he went to the Galapagos Islands, and he conceived the idea that the species one, evolve one from the next. Uh, he, he found this confined ecology or system of life there and uh, environment of life, and he, he decided that one had come from another and The power of this comes from the fact that it, it is tied to this modern historicism that is full blown in marx and and uh, it comes to be a proof. It purports to be a scientific proof that we are, in fact, evolutionary creatures, which means that we lack a nature. We are not a particular thing. We are a way station between one thing and another thing. And there's a lot of interesting things going on right now about Darwin. Uh, There's a lot of debate about him, of course. Um, It's always seemed to me, by the way, that... that, um, In one way, the solution to the problem posed by Darwin is very simple. If it were true that our nature, that who we are, is defined by a material process, that would mean that our soul was somehow overwhelmed or dominated by a material process. But if that were true, we could not have objective knowledge of it. It's the same problem of understanding that Marx faces when he says that our consciousness is set by a historical period. And then the question rises. Okay, then how do you know that? Mm-hmm. Aren't you just determined by history to think what you think? And of course, he—he's a very clever man. I mean, he's more than that. He's a brilliant man. Um, I'm trying to work up some words of respect for for Marx, and I've been taught to do that, but it's hard for me. Um, but he—he he has an out, and that is, well, I just stand at that moment in history where you can see it all. You can, yeah, yeah. I'm I'm exempt. Well, Darwin has the same problem, depending on how you understand him. And there are two things going on in the study of Darwin that are interesting to me. One is there's a group of people called the intelligent design types. And what they think is, A, Darwin's a bunch of rubbish, at least the largest and broadest claims made in regard to him. But B, if you look about the world, what you'll see is um, evidence all over the place of design, of If you walk down a beach and you see a pile of rocks, you think maybe they just got, depending on how they're conformed, you think maybe they just got washed up. But if you see a wristwatch, you'll think somebody made it. And, and, uh, And it looks designed. And one pile of rocks might look undesigned and another designed. And if you look at the universe, you'll see evidence of design. And they are big critics of Darwin, and they're qualified biologists, a lot of them really smart, and their arguments are interesting to me. Um, Another is a fellow named Larry Arnhardt, who's writing books about Darwin, associating associating him with Aristotle. I haven't read his book yet, but I know him and have heard him talk about it a couple of times and have some understanding of what he has to say. And his idea is really to save Darwin from the charge that he is a materialist in this Sense of modern intellectual historicism, and I'd just say that all those things are interesting. It, it seems plain to me that this, as I say, that this larger claim about Darwin—that he proves that we are evolutionary evolutionary creatures—cannot be true. Because if we were, we would be; it would be something materialist about us that would make it. Make us think that but he, he could prove that
0: he also unleashed upon the world a whole bunch of terrible political theory, or at least people who consider themselves to be political theorists about the right to rule and and the necessity of superiority ruling and of radical inequality among uh, humans.
1: Yeah, yeah, it's kind of uh, let the best man win, taken to <laughs> savage extreme. Th- that's right, and and that's right. That's in there too. It's not. You you don't get a picture of nature as kindly in Darwin. Of course, it isn't all kindly. It is both kindly and not kindly. The wolf eats the rabbit, but it also fights to defend its young. And, and uh, it, it, it is... Uh, I guess there's this guy, maybe his name is... I think his name is Dawkins, and he's a really smart fellow from...
0: Richard Dawkins, selfish gene.
1: Yes. Yeah, right, and he's a great... You know, I hear, I've hear i seen him interviewed twice. I've not read anything he wrote, and acting on my theory that it's, you can only know a few things well. Why waste time on him? But, excuse me, Mr. Dawkins, I don't know you, but I, I must say I haven't liked what I've heard him say. <laughs> and he sort of sits there smugly, you know, and takes great comfort from the idea that, you know, Darwin is true and ain't that great.
0: Okay, now listen, we're going to have to do Nietzsche. In six minutes or less. And all I can remember about Nietzsche is that when Alan Keyes, our friend, told me he first encountered Nietzsche, he was speechless for a day. He read Zarathustra and was just, in the way the Ayn Rand novel will sometimes reduce a young person to inaction, he was struck down by Zarathustra. What do we need to know about Nietzsche? Start now. we got a minute, then we'll come back to him after the break.
1: Okay. Nietzsche is a, a great German poet. Um, he is a uh, he comes after the doctrine of historicism, philosophic doctrine of historicism, has become full blown. And in a fashion, he rebels against it. He wishes to recover the, the greatness of the man in part. Uh, he has the theory of the overman, the ubermensch. And Zarathustra is a, is a character in what is probably Nietzsche's greatest book. And Zarathustra is a kind of a preparation for this ubermensch. And he, he thinks he wants to recover greatness. He's sick of this process, this uh, and also of Hegel's theory of the state, in which lots of competing groups join together to rule and work out a consensus. Uh, to him, the regimes produced by that are the regimes of the last men, who seek to huddle together for warmth and comfort, have no boldness and no spirit in
0: them. When we come back, we will talk about those men without chests with Dr. Larry Arnn on this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show. Welcome back, America. This is Hugh Hewitt. As we conclude part five of this special edition of The Hugh Hewitt Show, Dr. Larry Arn is our guest. We are closing this hour with a look at Nietzsche, the German who warned of men without chests. What did he mean by that?
1: Well, what he meant was that these various strains in modern philosophy from Hobbes and Maybe Locke and and uh, from Marx and Hegel. That what they were producing was men without chest, men men who had no muscle, no bone, no strength and boldness, no greatness to them. And Nietzsche certainly wished to restore that. He wished to restore that in philosophy. He <laughs> he wished for a comprehensive understanding again. He wished to. He was very interested in the classics. Nietzsche. In a certain way, he did something some of some parts of something that Leo Strauss also pursued, and that was he looked at it all and said, "This is not working that well. Maybe we should start over again. Uh, these doctrines are low, and uh, uh, we need better ones and so he did a lot of reading of the classics and he read them with a with an unusually intelligent eye um, he he in the end, he comes up with this doctrine called the eternal return. <laughs> and in a certain way, that's a historical process that's not a historical process. Uh, at the end of history, what comes for Nietzsche is the ability to accept and to thereby to transcend everything. The great moment at the end is not a moment, uh, a moment of individual will and individual comfort and individual... Um, life the, the the great moment at the end produces the great man and and uh, Nietzsche's works, especially the Zarathustra but also beyond good and evil and there's they're all like this they all are seeking first of all to explain how we got where we got and to offer an alternative which becomes mostly a poetic kind of an alternative it's very powerful. I remember when I first got to graduate school, a man who was in those days infinitely older than I, although he's really only three or four years older, uh, but he was three or four years older in graduate school. Peter Schramm is his name. Um, he, he, uh, I said to him once, I said uh, when we were in the middle of these great Nietzsche courses that Harry Newman would teach, I said, why did Nietzsche go crazy? And uh, Peter looked at me and
0: said, "Wouldn't you?" <laughs> <laughs> On that note, we're concluding hour six, and we are prepare- hour five, and we're preparing for hour six. Really, everything has been in preparation for hour six. It's the American founding, and it is Jefferson and Washington, Lincoln and Churchill with a man who spent most of his life in their um, acquaintance. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to the special New Year's edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Stay tuned.